uh, you know, sometimes you actually want to make it, you want to add friction. You want to slow somebody down and get them to stop and consider a message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Design Huddle. It's a podcast where two internet friends step inside the minds of creative designers in a variety of disciplines and learn how design impacts our everyday lives. Uh, We have an amazing guest today. Uh, We haven't had a guest in a while, so thank you, Jason, for showing up. Um, I'm going to give a very brief intro of Jason, and then I'll let Mustafa and Jason kind of fill in the blanks. But Jason is a design strategist, author, speaker, UX leader, technologist, just like an expert of the web overall, just like great guy from the 10 minutes I met him before joining the call. <laughs> uh, he's, he's worked in a variety of impressive organizations, Adobe, Audible, Condé Nast, GoDaddy, IBM. And he's given presentations, workshops, uh, spoken at conferences all over the world. Um, and he also has a newsletter on web typography. We'll make sure we link that um, in the show notes. Uh, yeah, what I miss? Mustafa, this is this is your dear the, the friend. La- so the, the last line you missed, and I think you've worried about it. What I try to do is like a sort of a joke line where I say he's probably best known, and I've written he's probably best known for his love of whales because I saw on Twitter someone called you <laughs> Moby because you like to do. <laughs> so welcome, Jason. Thank you. Actually, you'd probably I don't know if I can get him in frame, but most people actually know me best for that guy. That's Tristan. And his his cousin Tilly is outside, and and really like the only thing you need to know is if you want good pictures of of fluffy dogs, then you can follow me on Instagram. Um, <laughs> Sounds and perfect. they also make they they also make really so we have he's a rough collie, and we uh, his cousin is also obviously because they're cousins, but um, uh, they make really good examples for variable fonts. So they have made lots of. Uh, lots of appearances in my talks over the <laughs> over the years. That's really all I'm good for. But um, uh, so one interesting thing, I, at least I think it's interesting. I'm interested in it anyway. Um, that I'm also involved in is uh, the last few years I've been an invited expert in the Web Fonts Working Group at the W3C. Oh, that's great. And, um, and that uh, kind of all fits into some of the things that we were talking about just before we hit record. So I'll say them again, or at least paraphrase <laughs> it a little bit. Um, what has been really interesting. So um, for uh, for anyone who doesn't know know me, the, the thing that I focused on the most over the last 10 years has been web typography. Um, I started studying graphic design in the our sort of early 90s. And my first job on campus when I was in school is making the school's first website. and. So I've been in, like in web stuff for a really long time, and and I love typography. But um, I'm so I will say right now I will just piggyback and reference back to many things that Mandy talked <laughs> about a few weeks ago. She is a good friend, and I absolutely adore her and the work yeah. that she does. And um, I'm constantly blown away by her creativity and 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 knowledge with stuff. 
Um, and Jello, her dog, who is awesome. Um, and that's that's Tristan speaking up <laughs> about that. You both um, seem to have figured out how to use Instagram. I mean, I don't know if it's my age, but I look at Instagram, and I don't understand this website. <laughs> I'm just posting random things from my art history background. I was like, that might get a few likes. I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> oh, I look, I, I believe me, I have I will not even pretend to think that I have figured it out. But I will say that I um, it is a comfort to me. Like I was like, whatever it does for anybody else, like I, I hope they appreciate it. But um, I started doing that. Um, well, Tristan is just about to turn 13. Um, and I started this and we got him when he was four months old. And I, I probably started posting stuff regularly online, like photos, like a photo every day. Um, maybe a few months prior to that, it was actually kind of inspired by Dan Rubin, um, whom I'd met at some conferences. And, and he was, um, it was kind of like people were just starting to do these like 30 day challenges or 365 day challenge of whatever. And so he was doing this thing, posting photos all the time. And, and I decided that I needed, I needed something like that, that little bit of creativity. So Instagram wasn't even out yet. So it was just on Twitter at the time. And uh, my challenge to myself was to make a little piece of art every day, if okay. I could, or at least try. And, and so, um, I, I think that it has added a little bit of sanity to me. I'm always trying to figure out like an interesting image uh, of some kind. And I don't know that it's always successful. Um, and it has certainly, um, now since I'm not traveling much, it's really, uh, it's our dog walks in the morning. That's mostly what it, <laughs> what it is. And then occasional cycling photos. But, um, but that's like the, the heart of it is still there. I'm trying to find an interesting composition try and think a little bit more visually about stuff. And, um, and that's the only thing I let myself take the phone out of my pocket for in the morning. That's, that's cool. what I try anyway. So, you know, try and be a little bit turned off and, you know, other than looking for that little moment that I can capture or that little story that I can tell. Um, we'll probably go into like the W free stuff, W free C stuff or the technical stuff in more detail. But one thing I was curious about is, the W3C seems like a very technical place for a designer to be. And in terms of just like the, you know, the, the design visual language is a very specific. And if you have an art background, people can sometimes relate to it or they something they learn over time. How do you feel like working in that environment where you're trying to articulate the importance of typography? And sometimes it's hard to quantify that with metrics and data, but you know, it's like instinctively, you know, um, right. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, well, I'll answer that, but I think the first thing that I want to say is uh, the W3C is a group of people that by and large, there's a massive number of them that really care about text. I mean, there's like, if, if you've spent any time at all and, and you, you work on a browser, so I'm sure that you have reading CSS specifications the level of thought and detail and care that went into defining the specs around hyphenation is yeah. staggering. <laughs> I mean, and, and so there it's like, there's these pockets of it that are amazing and whether or not all of it's been implemented is a totally different question. But, um, but I have found that there is more and more recently, Tristan really has a lot to say about this. <laughs> um, there's, 
um, been an interest in engaging more with the type community, which has been awesome. Uh, that's actually where I kind of first became connected with the web font working group um, was in 2018, they held, uh, well, the CSS working group held a meeting at uh, Typo Labs in Berlin. And I was invited along with a few other people from the web design and, and web development and type worlds to kind of come in and, and sit in on a meeting. And we we're talking about a lot of things uh, related to variable fonts and um, and other aspects of, of implementation of typography. Yeah. And um, so I think there actually is a, a great interest in those working groups in having more experts from these adjacent areas engaged um, so that we get naming right, that we get um, details right about what we need on the web as practitioners. And, and so that whole shift of the W3C over to GitHub, that was huge. So that really made the ability to participate much easier. Um, and so you can link people to an issue and say, here's, here's where the discussion is happening. And, and so I try and do that and, and really follow the lead of folks like Jen Simmons and Rachel Andrew and, uh, and, and others to, to get more people into that conversation. Um, and, and so I, I've had, um, I've had very good luck in the reception of the ideas that I have as a designer, um, as a technologist or, or in trying to fit into that conversation, what I've had to do is understand the depth to which they need something considered and defined before it could be a made part of the CSS specification. Cause that's, you know, as we may, we have our own use case in mind with something and we want to focus in on that and we can describe that particular use case and then they come back with 47 other ways that this would be implemented on the web in different languages and directions yeah. and writing modes and stuff. And, and for something to be fully baked, you've got to consider all those things. So as a designer, you really have to think about it from a system perspective, which is a good exercise as a designer, but it is definitely something that sort of goes beyond what, what many of us, I think, would naturally be inclined to do is, is we solve the problem at hand. And maybe it's a problem at hand in the context of a design system or something, but, but this goes way beyond that. It's the design system, the browser implementation, what are the fonts support, um, what, how, what is the language support and how does that differ? Um, so there's, there's so many different issues there. Um, you know, even just getting better link underlining yeah. Well, that's really cool. Except some languages use overlining. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, so you know, like defining that offset has to go in more than one direction. And and so, like, there's there's interesting nuances to it like that that um, I think really fit into you know our world as designers in challenging our own assumptions and biases and what and what we know of the world. So, again, like even something like a link underline you then have your your brain sort of expanded like okay well that's one set of scripts what about devangari what about chinese japanese korean arabic yeah. you know how do those languages behave how do those scripts behave and and what's what's good and what's normal there um i I've, i love it i mean i just there's so yeah. you can go so deep into any one of those little wells jason do you mind taking a step back for a second so we have uh some 
designers that follow Design Huddle that are not like web design designers. So can you just give a, sure. an overview of W3C? <laughs> and I'd also love to hear about like how you got selected. I feel like that's like a great honor. Like a lot of designers would love to have that kind of um, like responsibility, I think is like a good word for it. So I'd love to just hear like an overview for anyone that doesn't know. And then another step of just like, how did you progress into that? And like, how, how can people get more involved, sure. you know, in the W3C? Yeah. Oh, I, I, that's, that's perfect. I would love to answer that. So um, the W3C is the body that is responsible for the standardization of HTML, CSS, uh, even JavaScript. So like any of these these web specifications that that are are what we all count on as web designers and web developers to build the web, all of that stuff is housed by the W3C. And and so that's the standards body that defines what is an HTML tag and how does it behave? What is a CSS selector and how does it behave? And and then you know, the job of the W3C is to define those things really thoroughly in a way that covers all of the ambiguity and, you know, all the different use cases. And and then that is the basis by which browser teams then look at that specification and decide how they want to implement it. And and so it is literally what what is the, the building blocks. That's, that's our material of the web. Um, at lowercase m, so I don't want to confuse that with anything at Google. But, but, but this is the stuff of which the web is made. Um, the analogy for designers who are, are graphic designers and are coming from more traditional um, forms of media, um, it is your paper, it's your ink, it's your varnish, it's your die cuts, it's you know all of those things that uh, that graphic designers grow up learning and knowing about about the producing of a physical thing. This is the the analogy of, of the web. So, you know, not to stir up that pot of designers and code, but but that that is it. That is literally like understanding what those things are and how they behave is that a fundamental part of designing for the web. Yeah, that's super and clear. Th yeah, I actually do want to stir up that pot. <laughs> no, no, more the thing with the code thing, I. I actually look at coders in the same way that I suppose graphic designers might look at printers and how a printer would help prepare the work look, in like the, the tools. I know the classical designers would have been putting things on uh, lead plates and stuff like that and building up this, like the whole process would have been the designer. But at some point, just for scale, that became a role and the designer, their tools and process became different. But I don't actually see like much difference. I remember when this is when we first met, Okay, going back to 2014. Um, I, it may have been Monotype gave a talk at the conference Future of Web Design where they explained that smaller sizes, letters were slightly curved on a lead plate because if they didn't, it would bleed. And this is like a very technical thing, but I think, oh, wow, like that's like the equi coding equivalent of blur. So, I mean, what do you think about... Yeah. I've said lots of things there, Jason. You can <laughs> unpick that. Um, well, I there's so much to go into there and it actually ties in so much with variable fonts. Um, but I don't think I really answered all of Ryan's question. So before we, because that's endless, you like, you just like, you just opened the door to like another four days of this podcast. So I hope yeah. everybody's like ready for that. Well, but, I didn't, um, Jason, we didn't tell you, but we're actually going to try to break the record for the longest podcast stream. So we have the next three and a half days are going to be wild. 
All right. Um, All right. But yeah, the, so the thank you for circling back. Um, the um, yeah, just the process of like getting there. Like I think that's super yeah. cool. I think that's such. A, I don't know anybody other than you that's in that body. So I'd love to hear how you got there and like what the process looks like. Yeah. Um, the process was envy and jealousy and uh, shameless self promotion. But <laughs> we could we could probably be a little less flippant about that. Um, I think I, I actually I want to start in 2010 um, because that is when I got a beta invite to Typekit. Um, it still or or I guess maybe that was 2009. Um, I got a beta invite to Typekit and I started using web fonts. Um, so so reference back to Mandy's episode when she talked about Cipher and Qfont. I suffered with that for a couple of years and then um, then Typekit launched and that was the first time that you could embed real fonts easily on a web page. And, and what I immediately noticed were some of the things that people complained about. And one of those things was fout or flash of unstyled text. And, and that was the, the condition, and we still see it today, where text shows up on the screen in Times New Roman or Helvetica or Arial or whatever, and then it like flips into the web font and the page redraws and very often your navigation reflows, your headlines reflow, things jump around, and um, you know anybody that's thinking long and hard about core web vitals right now, which is like everyone on the web, that's a big problem. So you know, talk about like repainting a massive amount of the screen because your text metrics are all different, and um, and that was a uh, that was a real problem, and a lot of people were refusing to use web fonts because that problem existed. And I started noodling around with some ideas. Um, Google was working at the time, I think, collaborating with Bram Stein, who is, who is currently at Adobe, creating the web font loader. And that was the precursor to what Bram has done recently called Font Face Observer. And that was a way to add some classes into the page during the loading process so that you could do something about it. You'd know whether or not the fonts were there. And um, and that kind of gave me an idea where, well, then the problem with Fout is the U. It's the unstyled part. So yeah. if you style the fallback fonts during the loading process, then nobody notices. It's like a JPEG coming in and sharpening up or, or like a GIF, you know, coming in pixelated and then, and then, you know, fully loading and looking sharper. So it's the same kind of idea. And um, I had started working on a, a module for um, for Drupal to integrate Typekit. And at 2000, uh, where I gave my first talk, actually, um, uh, ever at a conference, was at Future Web Design in New York in 2010, in the fall. And I met someone from Monotype there. Um, they were just launching their web font service. And I just walked up and I said, hey, are you guys doing anything in, in open source stuff? Um, I'm doing this stuff with Typekit and Drupal, and I'd love to help if there's anything I can do. And and that was my introduction to Monotype. And, and flash forward like a month or two, um, they're headquartered in Boston, which is about an hour away from me. And they just invited me to come up to their office and said, well, this is really cool. We'd love, we do want to collaborate with you on this because we do have open source stuff that we want to get into. Um, but would you be interested in writing for our blog? And, and so I, that was the first thing I wrote about was how to deal with Fout. How could you like tune up those fallback fonts so that you don't really notice that shift 
um, and your layout doesn't reflow and your navigation stays in one place. And, and that that's actually still something that not a lot of people think about, but it is absolutely a valid thing today. Um, it's more and more important than ever with the shift in Core Web Vitals and the meaning of that, um, you're reducing the layout shift. Um, that's a big part of it. Yeah. And, um, and so my point with that was I was just interested. I was curious. And so I started working at something and, and kind of similar to what, what Mandy said, it was, it was a sanity thing. I wanted to play with something and it led me to figure something out and, and then realizing that nobody was really talking about how you could solve this problem. They were just lamenting the fact that it existed. And, and so that was kind of my way in the door there. And, and from that point forward, that's pretty much all I've spoken about at conferences is, um, is web typography and, and how not just what its meaning is and its important importance aesthetically, but, but also technically, how can it improve the user experience? How can we implement it well so that it doesn't, it doesn't degrade the performance. It doesn't impede, um, getting content rendered on the page. And, and so, um, it's meant that, sorry, I'm just opening the screen door. So Tristan can go outside. That's fine. <laughs> um, Our kids and, will probably running at some point screaming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we keep it professional and classy here. We've got dogs wandering in and out. Um, so, um, so it was, it was showing up, it was being interested and, and that is what has always opened the door for me, uh, in, you know, successive iterations of this stuff. Um, it led to writing a book for O'Reilly about web typography, which came out right around the time that uh, Mustafa and I met in uh, in London. Um, it has gotten me invited to events all over the world, and um, and that one in particular in Berlin at Typo Labs, um, there were a bunch of people from different browser teams um, that were that were there, and a lot of people from the W3C and. Uh, and that's when I started hearing about stuff like, well, you know, you could come to this meeting. And so I got to see things going on there. And, um, and then I realized that you could apply to be an invited expert. And, and I think I had done it once a while ago and never heard anything, but I did it again. And I just went to the people that I knew who were on that working group and said, Hey, I applied for this. I really want to do it. And, and so it was um, it was showing up and being interested and engaged, and um, and so that it was a remarkable realization for me that if you want to be engaged in the process of defining and moving the web forward, um, you just have to show up, and and yes, there's more to it than that, but but the 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 discussion forums are open. Um, you know, it, and then when you start to participate more, then you start to learn a little bit more about how to participate. And when you want to, um, you know, voice an opinion about something, you learn a little bit about how to support that opinion and say, well, I think this is really important. Here's the history and, and here's the use case and here's how I think it should behave. And, and you know, it's a long process because they, you know, they have to they have a lot of work to do on a lot of different fronts, but, but that was really eye opening for me that if you want to be a part of how the web works, you can actually just stand up and, and say, Hey, I would like to participate. 
and and you can find a way in to do that yeah that's amazing i mean that's kind of like even if you do pull back like just career advice in general show up <laughs> like it with like my speaking career pretty much a very similar path i was angry about um uh what was the trend at the time skeuomorphic and flat design <laughs> <laughs> and then my friends at work said, "Oh, you're just jealous because you're not famous." And I oh, and I wrote a letter to Net Magazine, like uh, the web design magazine, and yep. the editor goes, "Oh, that's really interesting. You should write about this." And that was the path that led me to speaking and where I'm yeah, <laughs> just showing up. <laughs> well, and that's I think that there's something there's something really to be said for remembering that if one person, so again, I'm stealing more from Mandy. I hope she I hope she appreciates how much she means to me in that manner. Um, that if one person walks away from what you wrote, having solved that, have, helping them solve a problem, then that's a successful endeavor. And and all of these things are just steps toward helping more people do stuff. Um, I started from le- reading Lynchpin by Seth Godin back in like 2007, and the whole premise being just focus on giving away what you know, make yourself indispensable. And, and, and things come from that, you know, and it's not like the secret recipe for world domination. It's just about what the more you learn, and the more you teach people, and this is my, you know, the way I've always phrased it is people hire the teacher, not the textbook. So my whole like, uh, you know, my my newsletter was basically my attempt to rewrite my book in a format that I own. It's not, the copyright isn't held by any publishing company, um, but it's all there for free. And then people will look at that and say, hey, could you help us implement that? And that's worked. And I'm happy with that, you that's know? Like so. I, um, Jason, with that newsletter format real quick, how do you take something complicated and make it so simple? Because um, I, I just feel like web typography, there's... <laughs> Um, I feel like from, from the, my small sample size, I feel like you do. And, and, and like, that's one of the benefits that I think why you stand out as a conference speaker and a writer is that you're able to take something that's inherently complex, break it down. So a junior UX designer or a graphic designer or someone that's interested can c- kind of understand it. Is there any approaches you have, or is it kind of just like you've been in the industry for a while and that's, you know, it, um, no, I, I don't I don't think there's anything magic about it. I mean, some people are more naturally inclined to teach or or to um, to write or to speak or whatever. Um, but but I think everybody everybody learns stuff. And I think the this the only secret or or the, the, the trick, if I if there is one, um, is is to focus in on a small piece that you can cover completely. And that's what I've tried to do with um, with the newsletter. I started out, um, the first couple things that I was writing in there was like, how do you do a drop cap? Um, how do you, um, I mean, it was, I really focused in on, on a small thing, like one thing, and can I give a little bit of background about why you might do this and and how would you do it and and then explain the code and kind of the concepts behind it and and then it, it just sort of like built from there and 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 I was just really trying to 
push my own knowledge of traditional typography because it's always been an interest, but it was never something that like my the program that I was in in uh, in college was fairly limited. It was a small state school, so there there were no like three courses in typography. It was sort of covered a little bit in the first first semester, and that was pretty much it. So it was something I was interested in, but not something I had a lot of formal understanding of. So I would use this as an opportunity to 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 look at books, read articles, look for examples, and and then try and relate this given technique that I find found in a book or found in a poster um, or a graphic design annual or a record cover or whatever, and then and say like, okay, well, how might I do something like that? And um, and so that's that the newsletter was and I'm like so behind in writing that. Um, I can talk a little bit more about why, but. Um, <laughs> that's that that's what i've really wanted to do and and that kind of grew into um the the moby dick jokes um <laughs> what i what i did in the in the last number of uh of issues of that is i've been working on typesetting moby dick and and in doing that really trying to bring all of the techniques that i've focused on in variable fonts in responsive typography in um in interesting UI things and accessibility things and bring that together into a, a single interface and and then push that a little further and and try and and rethink how I how a book might work. Yeah. And you know what might a good reading experience be on a digital device because I don't think anyone has really made a particularly transformative one yet. And yeah. and I I think we could do I think we could do that on the web. And this, the, the building blocks of it have been improving all the time. When I started first playing with some of these ideas, it only worked in one browser, and now it works in all the shipping browsers. Um, so um, so that, that, was, um, that was kind of the, the, the in, impetus of that. And, and I've been working on sort of improving that, and now I'm starting to try and build some talks around it to sort of show people um, how all of this might work. So would you say like the best way to learn is to teach? I think so. And, and, and teaching, you know, that can take many forms. Yeah. Um, it's, it's writing a blog post. Uh, you know, I wrote a blog post in, it was like 2007 about things that we did to make a Drupal site 508 compliant, which in the U S is, is sort of the baseline of accessibility yeah. standards. Um, it, at the time, it was not as good as what like WCAG was even at, at that time with the one or one dot one standard, um, but uh, but it was still kind of an issue. There were starting to be some legal cases in the U.S. and and so this was a good way to um, to focus in on that and and so we solved uh, all of the problems that this huge website had for um, a CVS Caremark. So it was like, a, they're now like a fortune 10 company. They're like a fortune 25 company at that point. So they were a real, they're really concerned about meeting these accessibility requirements. And we did the audit and it took us like four hours to do all the things that we needed to do. And that was it. And so I wrote a blog post about that. And for years it was a top five Google search result. If you searched 508 compliance in Drupal. Yeah. And, and so that was, that was a powerful thing. I, I didn't I didn't invent anything new there. All I did was was work with 
the tools that were available to solve a particular problem and and wrote a blog post about it that took me probably an hour and and that that became something that solved challenges for many people for a long time and that was um i think that that's kind of one of those things that really nudged me towards wanting to to do that more and more so you know every talk i give the slides are up on noticed it's all in html and css you can pick it apart if you want um uh, you know, I, I I always try and keep everything that I do sort of out in public. Yeah. And um, oftentimes, even the workshop code and stuff like that, um, I'll I'll usually make those repositories open as well. So I mean, just I'm curious is like, how did you actually get into the industry then? In the beginning, like as a you you started because I started off as a graphic designer who saw the blink tag, you know, the typical yeah. cliche. So how did you actually get in on each? Oh, but I think we lost Ryan because we've got technical issues sometimes with this platform. So he'll probably come back. If not, we'll just carry on. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, so I, um, I got into it because um, my, I guess it was the beginning of my second year of school. Um, I started getting involved in the web a little bit in the first year. And then <clears> the second year, um, my job on campus was working in the publishing services office and um, and the guy that hired me said, okay, the school needs a website. We need to figure out what a website is. Yeah. And, and it was, it was um, the, they were still, uh, they were still starting students off with the links browser on Unix terminals at the time. And, um, and there weren't any books. So we sat down and we started looking for tutorials on the web and we had the, the school's web server sort of quote unquote, was a Power Mac 8500 on a table next to my desk. <laughs> and um, and so we figured out how to write HTML and, and I figured out I'd, I'd made a design um, and we showed it to the college president and he was like, that's cool, okay. And so that's that was kind of it. And um, making the, the school's first website um, just opened the door. I, I mean, I had always, uh, I had been already already been doing some freelance graphic design work, uh, but as soon as you know this was in 1994, as soon as you could spell HTML, you could get prod, you know side gigs making websites. Everybody wanted one, and and that's really where it started. So it was interesting because I was just starting the graphic design program, as you know I'd gotten past the the freshman fundamental stuff and it was in graphic design one and learning figuring out what HTML was yeah. um, at the same time. And so it's always been kind of fused for me. Um, it's always been been together. And and over the years, I've done .NET development, server infrastructure management, creative direction, and like, you know, started building my own content management systems in 1997. And it's just, I don't know, I've never been able to separate those things. And I've never really wanted to. Yeah. Um, I just I find it all fascinating, um, and that's the the type stuff fuses all of that into an even smaller area. So like yes. you've got to know how to implement it. You need to know what the technical issues are. You need to know what the browser issues are. You need to know how all of that stuff can be brought together to make um, to make something beautiful and usable and readable and accessible. And and I, I just I love that that mix of all of yes. those things together. I mean, would you, what would you say the difference between web and print typography is, if there is any? I mean, because ultimately it's about reading. And once you understand the accessibility of like contrast and hierarchy and all that sort of stuff, 
Um, um, is there much of a difference after that? Yeah, it's point, a great question. Well, um, there there is, and actually, I want to relate this back to something that you mentioned in the episode with Mandy. Um, I don't remember who brought it up, but uh, but the focus on reading, as you as you just mentioned, that was always my focus. Was it was about reducing the friction of the reading experience. How do you make it easier and more comfortable under as many circumstances as possible for somebody to get the content? And and eventually, at some point, um, I saw this this tweet from Nina Stosinger, who um, works with uh, Tobias Fair Jones. Uh, she's a type designer and an educator, and teaches at Yale. And I, she's just brilliant. And and she had she said something on Twitter about this idea of um, of design and. I'm I'm losing the the specifics of it, but basically it got me thinking about design as um, an either reducing or increasing friction, yeah. and it's it needs to do both of those things at different times. And if you think about, uh, you know, sometimes you actually want to make it, you want to add friction, you want to slow somebody down and get them to stop and consider a message. You know, really powerful poster design is not always going to be black text on a white ground. Oftentimes, you're going to have to struggle a little bit, and and that actually, you know, forces you to think about it a little bit more. Um, you know, the interaction between the type and image, and foreground and background and and layout. Um, I I think like that's some of the most powerful typography that you see. So so actually, you I think it needs to go in both directions at different times. And, and understanding that and then embracing how we realize that on the web is that's the real trick. And that's, that's one of the things that I've tried to focus more on recently is, is how do we do both of those things? I think, I think for reading typography, um, all of the basic tenets of good typography uh, in print, almost all of them can be applied on the web. But you have to be able to relinquish some of the specificity and control. It's about yeah. proportion, not specific numbers. That's so, something that graphic designers often struggle with when they first come oh, to web design. Oh, totally. Because everything is completely fixed. Yes. And it's like, what, I have to use algorithms to design? Does that mean I'm not a true designer now because I'm not defined everything in Illustrator or Quark or was it InDesign? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so I, oh, I think that is the heart is absolutely the hardest thing um, for designers and what I try and teach students and what I try and teach, you know, designers that I'm, that I'm supposed to be leading is, is to take a step back and, and think about the relative hierarchies that you are trying to create, not the specific point sizes you've chosen in InDesign. And once you start there, then you can say, you can start with an idea that the heading should be three times the size of the body copy. And if you, you know, get your elements of typographic style and you start reading through there, and that's what Robert Bringhurst said, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, that's terrible on a small screen. Yeah. Like, it's really bad. And and so that was really where I first kind of honed in on this idea of typography being responsive um, was... Uh, was looking at it on a small screen in a large one, and I started just doing a bunch of breakpoints so that you could bring the range. The dynamic range can be narrower on a small screen because you have fewer distractions. 
And so you end up with better line breaks in the headings, but it still has the the same volume compared yeah. to the body copy. Whereas on a big screen, you have to compete with more things, but you also can be more expressive at a larger scale. So so that's it. First, it was breakpoints. Then it was CSS locks that I learned about from Tim Brown, uh, who's uh, the head of typography at Adobe now. Um, he was one of the first people at Typekit. Um, and then, uh, and that he was, he, it was Marcus, oh shoot, Reichmuller, I think, uh, who, uh, uh, who originally wrote about it. But so CSS locks was really interesting and now we can use clamp in, in CSS. So I kind of migrated to that now where we can set the proportion on a small screen yeah. and then figure out how big we want it to get. And then let the browser do everything in between. So, so CSS and, clamp is almost like, say, if you had you've come up with an algorithm that says the type size is going to change depending on the column width of a piece of text, which was like content queries, which was the thing which everyone wanted. When I was looking at this stuff, and I think we've almost got that, but I'm so out of um, touch of the front end stuff. But clamping yeah. is like you've got this beautiful algorithm, but the problem is if it gets too small, then it's unreadable so clamp will right. stop it between a limit right is that the general? right so yes so you won't go below 12 points or 12 pixels or whatever right so you set a low end a high end and then you set essentially a a fluid value in the middle and and so that that can be something based on viewport units for example so yeah. that that's that's based on the width of the screen and if you do that with uh, combined in a calculation with a, a more fixed unit like a rem or an m, then you can still zoom it, which is important for accessibility. But but generally speaking, you're saying I want it no smaller than, let's use pixel equivalents. Let's say I want it no smaller than 16 pixels on a small screen. On the large screen, let's say we're talking about body copy, I'd love it to be up to 20. So I just want that to scale just a little bit. But as the screen gets bigger, I'm I'm giving it a value in the middle that is relative to the screen size. So then the browser, it is kind of creating an algorithm for you to, yeah. to say like, as the screen gets bigger, it's going to sort of smoothly grow up to the largest size that you set. And then you can do the same thing. And if you can picture these sort of like um, logarithmic curves, so your body copy maybe goes up just a little bit, your second level headings go up a little bit more, and then yeah. the, the, the largest headings go up even more than that. And so you can get a really expressive large size on a big monitor where you're competing with ads or other sidebar elements or other you know, interface elements on a larger screen, it still can get that relative attention that you want a headline to get. Um, but I, that, yeah, I was gonna yeah, say, I was like, that, uh, <laughs> graphic design, now this is the thing, because well, I went to a traditional graphic design school, so the debates, the traditional design is like, well, you're not really designing, you're handing over the keys to the machine. But then I remember like Eric Spiekerman once was talking about designing um, the label of a medicine, like say uh, diabetes. And now mm -hmm. you could look at that and say, well, this is boring. But if you look at in terms of the impact you're actually having on people and um, right. how you have to be so detailed in the considerations, <clears throat> yeah, you're not going to be designing this amazing custom piece of design. but in reality, what you're doing is far more important as a huge responsibility. And I think a lot of the trying to work with the machine is, is about that rather than, no, I'm going to have 12 pixels or 12 points is going to be my yeah. body copy. And that's that. I mean, what'd you say? Yeah, to that? I, um, well, I think it's absolutely true. And, um, and I, I, I really appreciate Eric's point of view on a lot of these things that, yeah. 
um, I am I am very much of the the school of thought that that type is never going to be neutral. It's always going to influence the emotional tone of of the content that it is conveying, and and it's going to influence it one way or another. But it's it's never not going to influence that. And so now you are using that as part of your design elements um, to to warm something up or cool it down. Um, to you know, if you're designing packaging for um, for for medications, the care and thought that needs to go into what do the numerals look like is critical, yeah. because that stuff's going to be printed really small, and people with aging eyes are going to be trying to read it. So so you need to be really thoughtful about what is the shape of a three versus an eight versus a six and a nine, yeah. and and how do those read at a small size? So that's the same thing when you go you know from a, a small inexpensive phone handset to you know a, a 30 inch imac screen or, or whatever the biggest size is these days and that's um, those are, are very different considerations but they're equally important and and so that's why i i really appreciate um that you know focusing in on the how do we make this work well on the device and so i'll usually default to what is a hundred percent on a given device because that's going to vary desktop yeah. browsers basically it's 16 pixels or at least 16 the equivalent of 16 pixels in our mind never mind how you know how high res the screen is that yeah, yeah. doesn't doesn't come into it as much but um but on a on a phone deciding what 100 percent is 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 handled by the device manufacturer and the and the operating system vendor who who's setting up the software on there to say, okay, we think this is going to be readable text. They know better than I do. So that's what I default to. I don't set body copy any small, any smaller than the default of one M effectively on a, on a given device. And, and I'll only go bigger from there. And, you know, so I try and, and, and use the things that other people have figured out and yeah. then how do we improve upon that or build upon that from there? And and the same thing can be applied, you know, when you get into variable fonts and like, what would you do? So now we're like, we're thinking about as the device capabilities increase, it's not just the size of the text, but what is, what's the mode in which you're seeing it? Is it a light, dark, light mode or a dark yeah. mode? And, and the, so the variable fonts are, are amazing for that because you might want to vary the weight of the text when you invert the contrast. So you know, depending on the typeface, in most cases, you want to go a little bit lighter when you have light text on a dark background, because there's a tendency to fatten up. I mean, our eyes, especially as they get older, um, that will lose sharpness and will kind of bleed together like an old CRT screen, if you can when think I, back that far. When I was looking into verbal uh, fonts, there was a setting which I think comes, it comes from Asian typography, uh, Asian as in China, Korea, Japan, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And they have something that's not quite bold. It's something else. I've forgotten the term where the, the text looks darker, but it doesn't change the width of the glyph. Oh, um, I, well, so I, there, there is I called. a notion called of grade. That's the one. Mm. And oh, so, so that I, I, I'm not certain of this, but I think the first reference I heard of that was actually, I, I believe it was Tobias Frere Jones, um, who was working maybe with David Burlow. Um, I, I'm, I don't remember, but, um, but the idea was, uh, in that case, it was trying to get 
um, it's you're right. It's it's changing the stroke thickness or or weight without changing the overall metrics. Yeah. And this originally in in the stories that I've heard about it was was to do with the different printing presses and inks and paper combinations to try and get something that visually looked the same on differing levels of quality and paper uh, and ink and all of that stuff. Sense. So you could subtly shift it. Now, now grade is incredibly useful in this very instance so that when you flip the contrast, you could change the grade axis. And, and so that that's, and um, Dalton Mogg actually has a typeface where they actually just have it like a dark and a light mode. It's just an on or off for, um, for their variable fonts or for one of them anyway, that I remember seeing. And, and that's exactly what it was doing. When you switched it to, to, to the dark mode axis, it would subtly reduce that. Um, and, and so if you don't have a grade axis, you can reduce the weight just a little bit. And in some cases you might want to just nudge out the letter spacing the tiniest little bit yeah. so that things don't reflow. The problem with that is you break ligatures when you mess with the letter spacing. So, um, if you can shift the weight of the text, maybe, you know, by 25 or 50 or something like that, it might not reflow anything. Um, so that might work just as well. You know, I always find great, like when I saw that, when I was first looking into variable typography, I found that really fascinating because one of the challenges on web design is like, you've got this beautiful layout, but then the title breaks a widow onto another line. And it's like, uh, I, I want this to be bold. And if it's not bold, it just lo loses its value. So, but the grade allowed you to maintain a degree of boldness if you had to compromise, mm -hmm. but still without a complete refill of the page. Right. Um, that's what I really found interesting. Ryan, I've been so excited talking with Jason and you haven't said a thing. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, so long, I, 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 to, to be honest, um, typography is not one of my domain expertise. So a lot of this is like very new for me and I actually find it like very interesting. It's just not an area where I've had as much time to, to focus. Um, with that being said, if, if someone is a little bit more new to typography, especially responsive typography, what's a good place to get started? Of course, like your, it sounds like your newsletter seems like an easy win. Any other like medium articles or books that you can point to? I know you have your book. We'll link that below, but anything else that you could recommend? Um, so there, there's a lot of good places to start. Um, the, I, I will say I, I, I wrote my book with that use case in mind. Um, so like the first third of the book is sort of introducing some concepts of typography and sort of working up into Great. the responsiveness of it. Um, so, so there's, there's that, um, it's still mostly relevant. So, you know, it came out in 2014. I feel pretty good about that. Um, the articles, the newsletter, sure. Um, but I'm, I'm like looking at my bookshelf up here. Um, <laughs> Eric Speakerman's, book stop stealing sheep and, and oh, that's learn amazing. how do you say that's yeah so that's that's a great book and i don't know if it has i have to check and see what the status of it is i know he's working on a new edition oh wow um and uh and that that will be coming out at some point i don't know when but um but any of the editions of it are good and also um ellen lupton's thinking with type is great that's a really good Think, and there's that was a, new, thinking a newer with type. edition yeah, yeah, that's uh, by Ellen Lupton. Um, really, really good. Um, there's, there's a, gosh, there's, there's a lot. Um, Inside Paragraphs is a really 
cool book by Cyrus Highsmith. It's a small one, and it really just looks at what are the elements of making a well typeset paragraph and, and why. Um, and so like that's usually can be summed up. Um, there's sort of three aspects to it. There's the type size. There's the length of the line of text. How many characters is that? And then what is the spacing between those lines of text? And those things are really tied. You don't really want to change one of those things without without the other. And and a lot of that is is directly relevant to the web because how we read, uh, what we're used to, um, is uh, is directly related to how well we can take that stuff in, and and it sort of comes back again to like what is a good reading experience. The longer the line of text, the more space you need between them because your eye needs to be able to right. follow back to the beginning of the next line. Left aligned text for people who read from left to right um, is always going to be easier and less tiring to read than centered text because your eye goes back to the same place at the beginning of each line, and. And then the smaller the screen, you can be a little bit closer together with the lines of text to maintain that sort of smooth flow of that. And, you know, because then if it's too spaced out, that also slows you down. So that's why I think all of these things like line height and, and font size and line length are all really important things to reduce that friction of the reading experience across these different screen sizes and why I don't think there's one answer to what is the best typesetting for a paragraph on a small screen versus a large one. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's an awesome list. I'll try to pull out some of those links for everyone listening as well, because I think that's an awesome, like, you know, getting started guide. Uh, there's some awesome recommendations there's, in there. Um, I have, uh, I, I will send you a, a link to a post that I have on Medium that is my, like, go-to, like, here's stuff to learn about typography. Oh, that sounds perfect. And, and it lists a bunch of That's books. Great. And um, it's it's interesting. I wrote it a long time ago and it still routinely gets like 100 views a week or so. That's awesome. I cool. mean, it's it's definitely people find it and I'm happy about that. So cool. uh, that, that's a pretty good story. Yeah, we'll, bu- like we'll bubble that up. Um Moose- Jason, actually, I want, I want to keep asking more questions. I'll keep here for hours. <laughs> I always like to ask the political questions. Um, there seems to be, I mean, there was like two schools of thought of typography, type that's supposed to be read and type that can be manipulated. And you have this sort of, I beca- I was a student in the 90s, obviously inspired by Ray Gun Magazine, The Grunge, Typeface, oh, yes. Neville Brody, where they basically broke all of the classical typography yep. rules of taking text, make it into a graphic. All of them, So all of my typography initial education was terrible for like reading. So um, <laughs> where do you, and, and we we're talking about this with Mandy, because obviously she was taking type styles and mm-hmm. trying to make editable type but with these amazing photoshop-esque right. styles whatever um and she was like yeah this is cool because it's like an experiment and something that you can do that's editable where do you sit on this um fence of should type or, or, do we have to have extremist views about these things well um, no but but if the answer is yes like you need both of those things so like that's exactly what i was talking about with with those dual roles of, of typography you know Fantastic magazine cover design is not about perfectly legible type. I mean, what made Raygun so amazing or Wired so incredible, or even just looking at a fashion magazine cover, the layering of those things sometimes slows you down, but it's engaging. And and it pulls you in and it makes you stop and think about the message that they're trying to get across. And and so we do need both of those things. And, the, and doing it on the web 
especially like the way that Mandy does it is like our unique opportunity to still make it accessible to someone with a screen reader. That's pretty amazing. So, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that, um, I'm, I'm all for it. And, and so that's actually, um, it, it's something that, um, I'm going to be talking to the design team at automatic in a couple of weeks. And that's one of the things I want to focus on. So think about a platform like WordPress. Yeah. What if we were building in, these like widgets to like typeset stuff using variable fonts. And so it's not just like great reading typography, but, but being able to like build a homepage that actually leverages the flexibility of variable fonts to do something really interesting, have some vertically set type, have text and image layered together, use mixed blend modes and, um, and masks and shape outside to wrap different kinds of text together. I mean, I actually, that's a bunch of the things that I experimented with in, in talks last or well in 2019 and, and somewhat in 2020. Um, and in the newsletter were ways that we can bring those things together and look at those techniques in, in typography to, to do those, those really interesting things on an angle skewed wrapped on around something using, yeah. you know, all these different CSS techniques. I mean, I, I, I learned a ton from um, from Leah Veru and Valhead and Mandy and, and other people that have done tons of these things with CSS um, and Una Kravitz too. Um, she had this really cool like Instagram filter kind of thing yeah, yeah. that she created in CSS. Um, so you can use all of those things. And then when you combine that with a, with a CMS, you can add the image, you can set the text, you could choose the effect. Now we could actually give people the ability to like build up the headline for this story, not any story. Cause like that's, you know, tons of people reference back to this thing. Um, this episode of 99% invisible where they talked about fighter jet design or fighter plane design in the military where they, they in, in the U S in the forties or whatever, like they had standardized it around these like average measurements of pilots. And when you, design something to fit everything it is optimized for nothing yeah so you know i'll go look up that that podcast it's awesome i mean what they realized that's what led to adjustable seats and adjustable throttle settings and adjustable straps and everything because people are different nobody is absolutely average and so a design system is great but but then bringing the design back in when you're publishing is even better. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, you think about, think about a newspaper design when the Titanic hit an iceberg, that was not set the same way that every other headline was set. It was here. It was massive. And so why can't we do that? Why can't we like set a headline that uses a width axis and so a sizing that is tied to the width of the window to actually jam this headline like edge to edge and really make an impact. We can do that. It's all there. It's all there in viewport units and, and calc and clamp and variable fonts and width axis. Uh, you can get even crazier with that. Like Amstelvar and Decavar, the, the, yeah. some of the original variable fonts have all of these controls for like the height of ascenders and descenders and all this other stuff. So you can really do some cool typesetting with these things. And, and we just need to, I realize it's not sustainable to custom code everything. We've got to build it into a system, but that's what variable fonts enable us to do. 
is to turn web publishing into a thing where you sit the designer down and teach them how to use that tool. And now they could actually do the same quality of design that they were doing in print, but actually do something that could work on every screen. And it could work in an interesting way. And maybe it's, it's vertical in one way and it's horizontal in another. We could embrace the fluidity of that design and, and take it as a challenge instead of throwing our hands up and saying, well, if it can't do everything that I think it should do, then I'm not going to bother. That's <laughs> what graphic design has done on the web for years. And that's awful. And I just, I want that to change. Ryan, we've had Jason here for such a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think this is like this has got to be one of my favorite episodes yet, and I know that because I'm I'm not I'm listening, not talking. Those are my favorite episodes where I just feel like I'm a sponge soaking up all this new stuff. But yeah, this was an awesome episode, Jason. I, I definitely think we should do like a part two down the road because there's so many more questions. So we'll post this. If people have questions, you can you know DM us or leave it in the YouTube comments so we can kind of figure out which topics uh, for next time. But it was awesome having you, Jason, as a guest. Really, I mean, I learned a ton. This is like a packed episode, so feel free to run it back a couple times if you're listening. Um, Mustafa, anything else before we sign off? Any closing thoughts, Jason? Um, I was not really kidding when I said I would talk about this stuff all day. So, <laughs> I, you know, like I really hope tons of people ask questions. Um, I like I was all excited to talk tons about variable fonts, and I feel like we just we just barely scratched yeah, just the surface. Touched on it, yeah. But but I I just I think they it just opens up so many possibilities. And and so that's I've kind of been like since they were introduced in twenty sixteen, like that's all I've talked about. Because I just I I believe in them so much. And and Google fonts to their credit, I mean, we went from basically zero percent usage on the web to ten percent of the web fonts served last year were variable fonts. That's amazing. I mean it's massive. And it's because Google realized the performance of this thing. That's what Mandy was talking about. It was way more performant to serve a single variable font than it was to serve all the static instances. And and so nobody had to do a thing. And I think that's the ultimate testament to the technology is that nobody even knew it was there. They just wrote their CSS, they did their design, and and then, you know, everybody reaped the benefits from those things just being served as variable fonts. And now that they are, let's be intentional. Let's really make use of it and, and start to really be expressive. And, and think about that, because in, in print design, you're going to use 10 weights of a font. You're not going to use two. You're not going to use three. That's not great typography. That's better performance. Now that we take the performance limiter away, we can do great typography. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to ask any more because we'll be here for another hour. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, we'll let's just plan on doing a part two because there's so much to unpack here. Uh, Jason, where can people find you? I know we'll, we'll link your social stuff. Is there any place in particular you want us to point our listeners? Um, well, I um, I encourage you to appreciate Tristan and Tilly on on Instagram, um, on Twitter is a great place to find me yeah i just followed i love the dog love the dog content we didn't even get to get into biking I, it seems like you're a big biker which is really cool yeah i actually that was a former life but i used to race full time oh wow college gosh we didn't even um, get get have time to get we gotta have we'll schedule part two this has been this has been awesome well okay, okay we'll we'll have like a, a total like type cycling nerd kind of thing we'll get mark bolton and rich rudder and 
Sounds, um, actually, oh, wait, sounds uh, perfect. this is guy, uh, what is he, Tyler? Somebody, this actually, there's a type designer I know in Philadelphia um, who is also a cyclist. So we've got lots of crossover Gosh, there. Perfect. We got to get a big meetup. That sounds like that's perfect. Um, so, yeah, there's there's lots. So Jay Pomantel um, on all of them. So Twitter, if you want to ask me questions about stuff, I love to answer things out loud. I want everybody else to get a chance to see it too. And I can point people. It's There's Perfect. tons of things on CodePen. I've got tons of repos on, on GitHub. Um, rwt.io is my own site. And you can find the, the typography tips there. Um, so all the things, all the code samples, all the, exam, you know, everything is, is there. And, and plus tons of my talks and videos and stuff like that if people are interested. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, I think that's a great spot. We'll get the summary from the Medium post too, which we talked about earlier, but um, truly a pleasure of ha for having you on. Mustafa, thank Likewise. you for the awesome connection. And then uh, we'll do we'll do part two. But that was a great episode of Design Huddle. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you haven't done so yet, uh, make sure you subscribe, share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.